0: This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexum Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. We're gonna spend today's show talking with Adrian Shankar about LGBT health equity and the particular needs impacting this patient population. We'll cover a range of topics from some of the current challenges to how nurses can take action to provide culturally responsive care. Adrian has a new book out. It's called Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health. I had the opportunity to review it and I certainly hope you'll check it out. I've gotten to know Adrian through his work as the founder and executive director of Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center. It's in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The center specializes in initiatives around arts, youth, health, and pride programs all in the Lehigh Valley region. And as a specialist in LGBT health policy, Adrian and his team are in charge of collecting data for the biannual Pennsylvania LGBT Health Needs Assessment. They measure LGBT health disparities and then come up with campaigns to address specific issues, such as tobacco use, which Adrian's gonna tell us more about in just a bit. So, Adrian, before we get started, I just want to thank you for making the trip down from Allentown to join us here in Philadelphia.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So, before we dive into your book, can you tell us about what got you interested in the first place to really devote your career to LGBT health equity?
1: I've always intellectually believed that healthcare was a human right, but I wasn't always... Super passionate about this issue because of my own privilege. And, you know, in the 2008 presidential campaign, I remember that just like today, healthcare reform was the topic of every major presidential conversation. Yet I was in college and I was on my mom's healthcare insurance and I had seen the same doctor for my entire life. And I didn't need to think about healthcare, at least so I thought. But I was incredibly wrong. Um, in 2014, When I launched Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center, we started our first LGBT health needs assessment not much later than that, only a year later. And we learned that LGBT health disparities are pervasive, affecting every part of our body and every part of our lives. That LGBT people experience health challenges from the minute we're born till the minute we die and everywhere in between. And that these challenges, these are social problems, they're not biologic problems. These are problems that are fixable if we work for it. And they're problems that the healthcare system including uh, healthcare professionals, health insurance companies, health policymakers can all work together to achieve health equity. I felt like I could contribute to this area because of my past work in LGBT policy, because I know that LGBT people like me, we deserve high quality care and we're not receiving it right now. There's an opportunity where we can all fight for better healthcare and that includes uh, telling our stories so that care professionals and policymakers can hear them.
0: Yeah, and then in, in your introduction, you wrote about how the LGBT community experiences worse health outcomes than the majority population. And I know in the foreword where Dr. L- Rachel Levine, who's Pennsylvania's Secretary of Health, um, she shared that it, it's hard to find providers who are competent in LGBT care. There's often a fear of negative reactions from health care providers. So between your experiences, what you've heard personally, professionally, looking at the data. What does not having competent LGBT care mean?
1: Well, very few providers are people who are intentionally going to provide bad care to the LGBT community. So that's not really what we're talking about. We're not talking about the minority of hateful people that happen to work as healthcare professionals. What we're talking about are the everyday uh, care professionals who in their heads and in their hearts believe that they're providing quality care for everyone, that they treat everyone equally. But as LGBT people, we know that, that sometimes that's just not enough. And personally, as a full-time queer activist, I had a negative experience with a healthcare professional. I made an appointment with a dermatologist to get a baseline screening for skin cancer. And uh, at every step of the way, the clinic office made me feel like the care that they were providing wasn't for patients like me. And on the one hand, one might ask, well, why do we need LGBT welcoming dermatologists? And on the other hand, we should remind people that all LGBT people have skin and that all parts of our body need culturally appropriate and responsive care that understands the uniqueness of our lives, the uniqueness of who we are, and that the care that we need is sometimes a little bit different than the care that the majority population needs. And I think that's the biggest problem is sometimes if our identities are not heard, if our identities are, are not present in that clinical space, we're not, being given information about risk factors. We're not being given information about relevant screenings. We're not having conversations that might be critical to ensuring long, healthy lives for ourselves and for our community.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate your sharing your story. Um, it's one of my favorite aspects of the book um that you're, you know, drawing from data, but um really sharing these first person narratives from queer activists that are on the front lines, that are, you know, working on these health equity issues in that sort of capital P um policy world, but also just living life and recognizing that we're all people and we need to be in a healthcare community that recognizes that. So um, you wrote the book for various audiences. You you mentioned um, anyone who provides care for the LGBT community. So that includes healthcare professionals, providers, obviously counselors, pharmacists, also health policymakers and activists. Can you tell us a little bit about how you set up the structure of the book? Um, sort of follows that lifespan. How did you um, come up with that as the model for the book?
1: I think that there's an assumption uh, that is rampant that LGBT people need healthcare during the times in our lives when we're most sexually active, and that ignores the realities of the rest of our lives. That from birth to death, LGBT people experience challenges when it comes to accessing healthcare. One of the first chapters of this book is navigating pediatric care for transgender children, and one of the last chapters of this book is dealing with bereavement care for LGBT older adults, and from birth through death, we are experiencing challenges in our lives, and the care that we receive can either improve or detract from our experience in the world.
0: And so you obviously touched on a couple of the topics you covered in the book, um, and there's really a wide range. I wonder if you could touch on some of the other topics and why you decided to include those in the book.
1: the first section of the book deals with LGBT youth, and chapters include informed consent for intersex children, navigating pediatric care for LGBT youth, safe binding strategies for transmasculine youth, and peer-to-peer sex education, because we know that LGBT people, even when they go to school, in school districts that that say they provide comprehensive sex ed, that that sex ed is not comprehensive when it comes to LGBT needs. And so the peer-to-peer sex ed is really important. We also have a chapter in that section about uh, queer youth homelessness, which as a social determinant of health, housing insecurity is a lead indicator of our health. The next section deals with young adults and authors in this section talk about addiction and recovery. They talk about sexual health in general. We have conversations about tobacco-free spaces and kind of the need for LGBT people to be able to meet up in places that are smoke-free, because so many of the gay bars in our country are places that are literal smoke-filled rooms. And same with other queer spaces, such as Pride festivals. In the next section, we talk about middle-aged adults and dealing with issues around cancer screenings and uh, quitting tobacco as someone who might have been a long-time smoker. Also thinking about HIV stigma and how longtime survivors of HIV have different challenges today than they might have two or three decades ago. And finally, in the last chapter, um, the last chapter deals with older adult uh, health issues. Everything from housing as a human right for LGBT older adults to caregiving concerns and finally bereavement support.
0: And I I know you were... um wrote a great uh, chapter about anal health. And I know that Bradbury Sullivan has been doing a lot of really um, exciting work in this area. And I, I uh, hesitated to use the word exciting because um, I know that it uh, it's a serious health concern, but I also think your approaches have been pretty creative. I wonder if you wanted to share a little bit about that.
1: You know, in every town in America, it's um, possible for a person with a cervix to find an appointment with a gynecologist to provide a routine cervical pap test. And what's surprising is that while 100% of Americans have an anus and while anal cancer is transmitted in the same way that cervical cancer is, mostly through HPV, that receiving an anal pap test is a huge challenge in most of America, especially in rural communities. So Bradbury Sullivan Center has launched two campaigns that deal with anal health. Our first campaign dealing with anal pap tests and another campaign dealing with hepatitis A vaccinations because the health of our bodies is the health of our lives. And if we can't talk about who we are as human beings and as sexual beings, then we're not going to receive the health care that we deserve.
0: Besides creating targeted campaigns around anal health, I know that you spent a lot of time also working on um, creating tobacco-free events and spaces for the community. The chapter you co-wrote with Anne-Marie Schenkweiler, you mentioned an alarming statistic. And I think this really gets to the point around people start to pay attention to LGBT health around their sexual health, but really it's so much more than that. And that tobacco is responsible for more LGBT deaths than alcohol, breast cancer, HIV, and gay bashing combined. So take us into this issue. Why is it so severe and what can be done to mitigate it?
1: LGBT people consume tobacco at scary rates. Um, more than half of trans people in some parts of America consume tobacco, double the rate of LGBT people as a whole consume tobacco. and. We obviously know that tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death in America and the leading cause of the 12 most common types of cancer. So when we see these disparities in tobacco consumption, it shouldn't surprise us too much that there's, um, you know, higher mortality for the LGBT community from tobacco-related deaths. What is sometimes lost on us is that the places where LGBT people have culturally and historically gathered are places that are literal smoke-filled rooms gay bars, pride festivals. Some of these places um, have had uh, sponsorship and marketing from tobacco companies in the past. Some of them are in places, states or cities, without clean indoor air laws. And as a result, LGBT people, even those who don't smoke are experiencing secondhand smoke as well. And that's not, that's not healthy. So the idea of creating tobacco free spaces for the queer community is about creating space where we can breathe clean air and find each other as a community in places that are healthy and places where we can thrive.
0: So obviously, this podcast is designed around looking at the unique needs of healthcare consumers. And your book, again, does a, a really phenomenal job at giving voice to a lot of these needs. Our podcast also highlights different ways that nurses are delivering care that is meeting those needs creatively, um, certainly areas where we can improve. So let's talk about the ways that nurses either are or could be delivering culturally responsive care.
1: Nursing is a health professional field that is trained in compassion. And I think that for most LGBT people who've experienced negative healthcare experiences, they've also experienced positive healthcare experiences at some time in their life. And I would guess that many of those positive experiences have come from caring professionals, including nurses or counselors or social workers or therapists, the caring professions that really are trained around whole person care to not only check your vital signs, but to ask how you're doing and to ask if you have any questions and to be there to answer your questions, because nurses uh, can sometimes be a little less rushed uh, in their care and more able to listen to the patient and really understand their concerns and their needs. Now, not every nurse is trained in LGBT-appropriate care. Not every nursing school teaches about health equity, but many do. And nursing schools can certainly do a better job of incorporating information about health equity into their curriculum, especially dealing with health disparities and marginalized populations. And nurses who um, have already graduated from nursing school and are working in the field can consider taking some of their continuing education credits around health equity and making sure that, especially if it's something that they don't feel very familiar with, that maybe this is a really crucial area to learn from. And nurses who do feel very comfortable would certainly already recognize that culture and language shifts over time, and that it's always important to stay current and make sure that as nurses are continuing to receive uh, those continuing nursing education credits, that they're doing so in ways that keep them up to speed.
0: So a lot of nurses are LGBT as well. Um, what role do LGBT nurses and, and allies play?
1: That's super important because so many LGBT consumers of healthcare have had negative past experiences when seeking care. And a lot of LGBT people are seeking providers who they know that it will be safe to, to ask questions to, to be themselves with, to, uh, to know that they won't feel judged by the care professional that they're talking to. So for nurses who are LGBT, one pediatric clinic that we worked with, it's actually a nurse-led care clinic. The nurse practitioner worked with other care professionals to put rainbow stickers on their name badges. They also put signage in their waiting room that made it very clear that it was an LGBT welcoming clinic. For nurses who are LGBT to consider being out at work and to do so in a way that lets their patients know that they that they are a safe person to ask those kinds of questions to. And obviously there's professional boundaries to be aware of, but it is totally appropriate to let your patients know that, that you're an LGBT person too, and that you will provide safe and affirming care to everyone.
0: Can you provide some examples? What, what does not having competent LGBT care mean and feel like today in 2020?
1: When you've met one LGBT person, you've heard one LGBT story, and all of us have different experiences, which is why we put this book together to present so many different types of LGBT patient experiences. In one chapter, Robin Oaks, a nationally known bisexual activist, writes uh, in her chapter, Without Wincing and Clenching, Bisexual Community Members' Experience with Health. She talks about a story from her own experience where, in her 20s, she was um, meeting with a clinician for a primary care visit, and the clinician asked her about birth control she says that she wanted to respond that she uses the lesbian method because she was in a relationship that was monogamous with a woman at the time. But really, she felt awkward and uncomfortable that there was a presumption of heterosexuality from the get-go. And I think that, that that's actually one of the biggest challenges LGBT healthcare consumers experience is a presumption that everyone is heterosexual and cisgender and that we're only different if we publicly state that or they assume that we're not. And the presumption of heterosexuality Sexuality is actually a huge barrier to care because in sometimes very stressful environments, when you're literally in the middle of a healthcare screening or an exam, you're finding yourself needing to share details of your life with somebody who you don't know that well. And that can be scary, but it can also mean that people stay in the closet and that they end up not getting the care that they need and deserve.
0: Yeah, it it really makes me think about the comment not thinking about healthcare, sort of looking at healthcare as an economic consequence uh, around marriage equality and some of the other areas you were talking about, but in so many ways, our health, that's where we're at our most vulnerable and where we need care the most. I mean, that's why thats why it's called care. You know, one of the things that I actually hear often from nurses about is wanting to know more, that they really want to meet the needs of the patients that they're working with, but they maybe aren't as familiar um, with some of the issues that are coming up. They might feel uncomfortable around language What kinds of resources are available to help nurses be better allies?
1: first, for nurses who want to be better allies to the LGBT patient population, that's so exciting. And thank you. Uh, because that's the first step. It means that that you actually know that you want to provide high-quality care for a population that has not historically received it. That's actually transformative. So that's the first step. Second step is then utilizing your continuing education credits wisely. And uh, you know all nurses receive continuing education, but there's a wide variety of topics that you can choose from and choosing to learn more about LGBT patient care and health equity frameworks is a great way to get started. And finally, um, for nurse-led care settings where nurses are given decision-making authority around things like training for their entire team, partnering with a local LGBT community center or community-based organization that specializes in LGBT health equity work is a great way to get started to make sure that the entire team from the receptionists, handling client intake to the nurses providing the care themselves uh, to anybody else involved in medical billing. Uh, if there's a pharmacy on site, that LGBT patients receive high quality care from the minute they walk into the clinic until the minute they leave. That is health equity.
0: Are there any models of nursing or nursing education that that you've seen that come closer to that vision of LGBT inclusive care?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the most important models is the model that continues training repeatedly, and that brings LGBT healthcare experiences into that training. Sometimes when we provide training at Bradbury Sullivan Center to nursing professionals and to healthcare organizations more broadly, we actually bring LGBT healthcare consumers with us to share their narratives, just like is done in this book. Because in Bodies and Barriers, we're activists on health. Um, We're presenting these first-person narratives, and in trainings, that's so important as well. So We'll sometimes bring healthcare consumers with us to tell their stories. That's a really great way for nurses to learn. Um, Nurse-led care models in general work very well because nurses are taught to be compassionate. And the training that they've always been given has to do with that compassionate whole person care. Finally, um, Bradbury Sullivan Center led a uh, program where um, we actually had an eight-month cohort of nursing champions for health equity, where they learned from patient experiences and they learned from experts in the field and were able to really become internal activists within their own clinical spaces to improve care for the LGBT patient population. And I think that for any nurse who really wants to be that internal champion, the best way that they can do that is to learn the stories from the patients that they provide care to. You don't want to ask your specific patient to tell you their life story, but you can read their stories. You can go to trainings where their stories are going to be shared, and you can then infuse that information into the work that you provide and into the work that your clinic provides. That's the best way to achieve health equity is to actually listen to patients from the beginning.
0: And that's where I I think you're right. Nurses do make really natural partners in this effort because, again, the training is often premised on listening and you think about motivational interviewing and you think about the models of nursing themselves really lend themselves to listening to the person and and where they're coming from, um, no matter where that is. So throughout the show, we've talked about what non-inclusive care might feel like. Your book certainly addresses that as well and talked a little bit about different ways to address that. Looking to the future, what does inclusive care feel like?
1: Inclusive care feels like a dream. And what it really feels like is that our bodies are treated equitably, our stories are heard, our challenges are listened to, and that the care we receive is responsive to our lives and our experiences as who we are, that we access care without judgment or shame, and that we're treated equitably. From the minute we walk into a healthcare space until the minute we leave with a prescription from a pharmacist, we are treated equitably for who we are.
0: So thank you again for making the trip to be with us here today. Um, thanks for all the work that you're doing at Barberry Sullivan around you know, really building that future that we're talking about around LGBT inclusive care.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And I hope everyone will check out Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, uh, available wherever books are sold. Funding for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and the AARP Foundation, along with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Pennsylvania Action Coalition is housed at the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium, a subsidiary of Public Health Management Corporation. You can find out more about us and our programs at paactioncoalition.org. Follow us on social media at PA Action. We'd love to hear from you. Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media is our producer, and we've had production assistance for this episode from Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.